Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, here with Professor Akil Amar. Hi, Akil. Hi, Andy. And Andy, I can report, I know the audience just cares deeply about this, that my one tooth is fixed, okay? After like, you know, six different procedures. And Andy, I, I, I know that, uh, that this awaits. It'll be just fine, Andy. Yes, people aren't hearing screaming coming from Princeton, New Jersey, so they know it hasn't happened yet. Okay, um, so we last week we were awaiting possible indictments of former President Trump in New York, and we're still awaiting uh, possible indictments. But um, we're not going to wait forever, so we're going to start talking about it. Um, so here's here's a general thought about how we might approach it. We don't want to overly speculate. So, I mean, I think some things are fairly clear based on you know, what we've read in the papers and the people that have been going to testify, that have said they've testified and things like that. Um, so there's, there's some things that are fairly evident. And there are some constitutional issues that have been raised by what we know so far. So I don't think we're going to try to overreach and say, here's how the here's how this case should come out or the, here's an indictment that should occur or something like that. But we can talk about some of the issues that are raised by these possible indictments and the investigations themselves and the way they're being conducted and, and that sort of thing. And maybe we can talk a little bit about um, the notion that a former president and possible, well, and a declared candidate for the upcoming election um, is going through this process um, mm-hmm. and, you know, what the standards for that might be, might be appropriate standards for that. So we can talk about that and that can sort of lead us into some thoughts about, you know, the possible wisdom of, uh, of some of these things. But I right. don't think we want to overreach uh, and say, well, he's guilty or he's not guilty. You know, and we don't even know what, what the charges are. You know, well, Andy, here's one issue. Audience members, we, Andy and I often talk about things, but we don't, often just rehearse things to the to the nth degree because we want there to be some spontaneity. So here's an issue. I don't think we've ever talked about it, you and I, either on the podcast or offline. And it's one of my <laughs> additional theories. There's this Monty Python episode. It's with Anne Elk. And Anne Elk has all the, you know, has a theory of the Brontosaurus. And, you know, so I, I have a theory of the grand jury. And I don't think I've ever told you about it. And the question is, why, what's up with grand jury secrecy? What's the concept there? And sometimes we're actually worried about what happens in a black box. Our society believes in transparency in certain ways. It's the best disinfectant, we say. And we also believe in secrecy. Secrecy is one of the five or six words that Hamilton uses to describe um, executive power, quintessentially. It's in the Federalist Papers, um, energy, vigor, secrecy, dispatch. And so let's think about, for example, one thing that presidents do. They today do espionage. They've always been commanders in chief, and you can't do all of that openly. George Washington, as commander of the Continental Army, is engaged in all sorts of deceptions. He, he He's not announcing to the British in advance 
hey, we're going to attack Trenton and Princeton, okay? And what you do in warfare sometimes is indirection. That's what a feint is. You know, you, they think you're coming one way, but you're actually um, coming another. So, right. so you send course, uh, General Patton to Pas de Calais instead of, uh, and then the Germans think that the attack is, going, is coming there. Because they think Patton is our greatest general, and so he's a decoy duck. Yes, of course, that's what you do militarily. And and Washington is a master of deception in all sorts of ways, but espionage as well. So let's actually take espionage, and then I'll connect it to the grand jury, because I'm now telling you why actually there's we um, the executive branch needs to do lots of things that are secret. Military stuff is secret. Espionage and stuff is secret. So, Andy, you and I are always talking about our bright college years. And when I arrive at Yale College on my 18th birthday, sight unseen, I am assigned to a dorm. Um, and it's in a place on the, camp- on the Yale campus called the Old Campus. It's where most of the um, what we, uh, the first-year stu- uh, students are. Back then, they, we were called freshmen, men and women. And I'm in Bingham Hall. Bingham is actually named for um, Hiram Bingham, who was an archaeologist. He was the governor of Connecticut. He uh, discovered Machu Picchu, and he was actually Hiram Bingham, the basically the model for Indiana Jones, which is why the not good Indiana Jones one part of it's filmed actually at Yale, the fourth one. Any event, my dorm room, Andy, is about 50 yards at most, maybe 30 yards from a statue of Nathan Hale, which is right in front of the oldest building on campus. You know all this is Connecticut mm-hmm. Hall. And Nathan Hale is, he's a school teacher. Um, and he's, I think, Yale class of seven, 1770 or 1773. I can't remember, but but he was actually in that dorm room, apparently. There's a little plaque dedicated to him. And the statue is the drama of the statue uh, back in, in my day, it was actually placed up against the building and you couldn't ease in a, in a flower bed and you couldn't easily walk around it. Now they've pulled it away so you can walk around it. And the drama is he's a very young guy. We don't really know what he looks like. So they picked some good looking Yaley as, as, as a model. His head is high. The drama is when you walk around, you can read along the, the base of the statue, his last words, my only regret is they have one life to lose for my country. And then when you walk around the thing, you notice his hands are tied behind his back. And you, you notice, actually, when you look carefully at that inscription, which is right by his feet, that his ankles are bound. And then you realize what's happening. You know, his hands are tied behind his back. His ankles are bound. This is what he say, says this is his last words. He's about to be they're about to slip the noose on um, around his neck. And this is what he says very briefly. Now, who is he? And why are they about to hang him? Who's are they? The Brits. This is in the Revolutionary War. And he's a school teacher. He's a Yale graduate who's a school teacher. But George Washington asks him, I think maybe even personally, definitely the order comes from Washington. Can you please basically infiltrate, insinuate yourself in New York City behind, as were enemy lines, as a civilian, and keep your ears open and tell us where they're going to be, what what their movements are going to be. Now, from the British point of view, he's a spot. He's caught. Someone recognizes him, actually maybe even a relative, and he's captured by the British and, and treated as a spy. He's in his, he thinks, I'm in my own country, I'm in America, but he's technically behind enemy lines. The Brits control, um, at that moment, Manhattan, 
And, and he's not in uniform. If he's in uniform, he has to, you capture him, he has to be treated like a prisoner of war. And, but if you're behind enemy lines, out of uniform, you're a spy. And the penalty for being caught as a spy is actually not just death, but a dishonorable death. They don't actually, an honorable death is firing squad. Okay. A dishonorable death is hanging him and he's about to be hanged. That's the drama of the thing. Andy, this is my, First week at Yale College. And you and I know what it means for God, for country, and for Yale, okay? And, and, and Nathan Hale is an embodiment of this. Now, why am I telling you all of that? One, because I'm interested in American history. Two, because, you know, George Washington was trying to keep it a secret. You know, he doesn't want to broadcast to the world, oh, Nathan Hale is our spy. Now, when Benedict Arnold is selling the plans to West Point to Major Andre, and Andre is actually caught behind enemy lines. Now, the enemy is the American. He's caught behind American lines, and he's out of uniform, you see. And then the question is, how are we going to treat Major Andre? And Washington makes the decision, and Hamilton hates this. Hamilton is his aide-de-camp, that not only is Andre going to be killed, we're going to actually kill him by hanging rather than firing squad as a reprisal, because they shouldn't have done that, because he's a gentleman. And so Nathan Hale was a gentleman. And you don't usually do this to gentlemen. War back then was 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 a very class-based thing. And, and Andre, oh, he was artistic and poetic, also civilized. Hamilton thought it's horrible. We're actually treating him as if he's a common cutthroat, as if he's, you know, a pickpocket, a, a, a murderer, a scoundrel. But this was Washington's reprisal for Nathan Hale. I think he okay. also took Arnold's treachery very personally. He did, because he trusted Arnold. And when as soon as he finds out, this is what he says. He says, Arnold has betrayed us. Whom can we trust? Because George Washington is actually a pretty good judge of human beings. And he's been totally fooled by Benedict Arnold. And West Point, oh, if you lose West Point, that's huge because actually it controls the mighty Hudson River. And, and if the Brits actually had managed to control the Hudson River, they can sever New England off from the rest of America. This was a very big deal. Okay, now, this is all by way of saying there are reasons we actually have executive privilege and secrecy in the Oval Office because of what presidents do. They do espionage. They do military stuff, some of which is secret. They do appointments stuff. Now, let me tell you about appointments. I actually was nominated, and I don't know if I told our audience this, you know this, for a Senate-confirmed position in the Obama administration. President Barack Obama nominated me for a position that requires Senate confirmation. I never got a hearing, never got a committee vote, never got a floor vote. <laughs> me and Merrick Garland, except he was nominated for the Supreme Court, and I was on, on nominated to, to be a member of the Citizens uh, Commission for the National Council for the Humanities. But in any event, I mention this because the paperwork I had to go through for this vetting process was, I'm not exaggerating, hundreds of pages all sorts of details, some of which were pretty, might be embarrassing. They asked, for example, about drug use and a pro tip out there, you know, drug use in, in high school and college. Pro tip to all our audience members, because some of you, one of you, you know, you're a very impressive audience. Some of you are going to be nominated for things. Do not lie on this form. That's a federal crime. 1001. And if you admit to drug use, that's not going to be a deal breaker in, in, in most cases, but don't lie. Now, in fact, you know, this is just, it happens to be true. You know, I, I, I never smoked marijuana. I never smoked a cigarette. I just don't like smoke. 
You know, my parents are doctors. I was a little goody two shoes. I'm not saying I'm better than other people. Okay. I'm just saying, here's the point. There's lots of embarrassing stuff when you are vetting possible people for high level offices. And that stuff needs to be confidential because if you admit drug use, it's in a certain, on a certain piece of paper, but it's treated very confidentially. It's not going to be broadcast. And one person who really understood that very well was Joe Biden when he was chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, he tried to hold, keep very close certain confidential information. The Senate actually has two different kinds of hearings, one for certain sensitive things. Anita Hill didn't want her accusations to be made public and they got leaked. And Christine Blasey Ford actually didn't want to go public. And the Senate has its own secret procedures when it goes into executive session for certain confidential stuff. Because why? In When doing that is acting often as an adjunct to the executive branch. They're advising and consenting to a presidential appointment. So presidents do stuff in secret. The Senate does stuff. And not all secrecy is actually bad. There are sometimes reasons for this. So I've given you three situations, military, espionage, and appointments. So now I'm going to get to grand jury secrecy in just a bit, but let me give you some other kinds of secrecy. Since we were just talking about executive branch and three things, military, diplomatic, and appointments matters, in sensitive personnel matters. Now here's, let's, let's take actually the judiciary. Some stuff happens in open courts. I think today was an oral argument. And the opinions themselves are an open statement of reasons. But as we've talked about before, we did episodes on the Dobbs leak. The preliminary conversations are not actually broadcast immediately. And on those, it's like a 50-year omerta. And often we don't really find out what the justices talked about amongst themselves. They meet on Fridays and only the nine of them, no one else in the room. And that's stuff by tradition A lot of the justices actually don't release their papers until the last justice with whom they've served not only left the court, but has died. That's the approach some justices have taken. Others actually release stuff a little earlier, like Harry Blackman. Okay, but in general, the conversations that the justices have with each other or with their law clerks, not only is it secret in the moment, it's not released immediately after the opinions comes out. Whereas we talked about this before on our podcast at the Philadelphia convention, it was secret in the moment so that people can float an idea. And then if it's a stupid idea, they can pull it back and not look as if they, you know, are backing down because that's awkward. You know, if you change your mind on things, but, but reasonable people change their mind on things, but they thought in order to facilitate, you know, candor and, and people just saying what they really think it's going to be secret in the moment. But once The Constitution went public on September 17th, 1787. Actually, in principle, everything could be talked about. Now, as a matter of gentleman to gentleman, often many of them refrained from saying something particularly negative about another fellow delegate. They did start spilling the beans. They said, well, just in general, here was the argument on one side and here was the argument on the other. And that was beginning on September 18th. They were not a sieve during the deliberations from the end of May to mid-September, but immediately, the day after, they start leaking. But 
typically leaking in in ways that weren't kind of a, a personal and harshly critical. Okay, now we've talked about secrecy in the court, and we've talked about secrecy at, at Philadelphia. Jury deliberations are sort of often a secret, but then afterward, sometimes people talk about them and sometimes they don't. How does the grand jury fit in to all of that? And why do we have these strong norms of secrecy? I have a theory about that. Here's my theory. And Andy, I don't think, have we ever talked about this before, even no. offline? I don't remember. No. Okay. You know what it's all about? Well, you're going to love it. It's all about the Godfather. Okay. Here's the point. Um, I don't love... Everything is about the Godfather. Of course it is. Okay. I, I don't love... Okay. So in the police station, one problem is if, if the police station becomes a black box and we don't know what's happening and maybe they're just beating people up in there and they, and I'm not making that up there. There were times in American history where this was the rubber hose and, and it was kind of a, a torture chamber. And that's what you're worried about. And, and that's a problem with police stations. So, you want people to give information. You want them to rat other people out. And you don't want the, the people who are being ratted out to know that in the moment. So television, live television feeds on this, that's going to be a problem. But you're worried about a police station in which there's going to be abuse. You don't want it to be a torture chamber. What does Miranda do? I think it may, it's a mistake a little bit. It tries to bring lawyers into the process immediately. And the lawyers are going to tell the, the people to clam up. And I'm not sure that that's you know, the best system. I do prefer, I think a different strategy wouldn't have been bringing lawyers in from the beginning, but bringing magistrates in to oversee it, to make sure that actually it's proper and civilized and cameras. Okay. And, and I was arguing for this way before we had body cameras and, and all the rest. So, so I think cameras in the police station to record everything so that make sure that the cops understand, because that, you know, the real effect is cops knowing that the camera is running are going to behave themselves better. At least that's the theory. Now, here's how it connects to the Godfather. Some crimes you see are organized crimes. They involve actually people coordinating with others and some people giving orders to others, taking orders from others and, and working together. Mid-level person, you know, the, the button, a button man or someone, you know, one level up from that. The question is, is he going to squeal? Is he a rat? Okay. Now, Here's what happens today. Um, and there, and you've seen some Law and Order episodes about this, actually. The Don provides a lawyer for the, the underling. So if the accused declines the lawyer, oh, the, that's tipping people off. Now, maybe that the accused is sufficiently low in the organization that he actually never met with the Don. The whole point in The Godfather is there are these layers of insulation, you see. And The Godfather yeah, the family had a lot of buffers. Uh, yes. That's what Willie Chichi says. Yes, and in the and then the book is that that the only person who really knows all the things is the consigliere. And no consigliere has ever turned on a don. That's actually you know in in, in the book, and that's why you have to pick the consigliere very carefully because you often you never give the order. You give it to the consigliere who gives it to someone else. So the, someone else can never say, I got this order directly from the Don. And, and so the consigliere is your, your ultimate buffer and protection. Okay. It's not true and anymore, right? It Pro, isn't, but, but, but in the God, in the, a, in the book, yeah. you know, you know, in, in one or whatever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, uh, okay. So now, now he, so, um, so in organized crime situations, actually a lawyer, 
and, and, and the lower person may not be able to afford a very good lawyer. You'll get a lawyer from the government, but they may be overworked and underpaid and may not really be great. Oh, now there's this great gift. I'm giving you, you know, Clarence Darrow, you know, the, the best of the best. Alan Dershowitz. Oh, Alan is a very ethical lawyer, but just I'm going to give you, a, you know, a great lawyer. F. Lee Bailey. You know, um, Johnny Cop, it's, you know, some really high powered lawyer who, who wins a lot of cases. Okay. But, and, and some of those that I mentioned were very ethical. Um, but yeah, imagine. Free Bailey was disbarred. I said some of those were very yeah. ethical. Yeah. And, and Clarence Darrow actually wasn't perfect, truth, truth be told. Imagine though, the lawyer is very good, but not entirely ethical. So the lawyer's job is in principle, no matter who pays the lawyer's salary. If the lawyer represents a client, the only loyalty is supposed to be to the client. This is Legal Ethics 101. But as a practical matter, some lawyers aren't like that. They're actually, you know, paid by the Don and they're reporting to the Don. And their job is to make sure you don't rat. That's actually their job. And you can't decline them. That's an, it's an offer you can't refuse, an offer of legal assistance from the Don, because that's going to tip off the Don. And now you're a dead man. Enter the grand jury. This is what I love about grand juries. This is my theory of grand juries, you see. So here's the nice thing about grand juries. We know they're not going to be a torture chamber. They're filled with ordinary civilians, you know, and, and lawyers. But your lawyer is not allowed to walk in with you. You go in. Maybe actually you say nothing at all. In fact, and you take the fifth again and again and again. Um, but they hold you there for three hours. They won't let you leave. And the lawyer doesn't know what you said, you know, in that closed room. And the Don doesn't know what you said. And that's what I love about grand jury secrecy. You see, this is my theory of grand jury secrecy. It's in part because no one can be sure that you didn't rat behind closed doors. And by rats, I think ratting is a good thing. You're telling the truth and this we can, and, and maybe you only can give them, you know, three people who are slightly higher up, but now we can actually get convictions from them and we can bring them into the grand jury and the same thing and they will name people you know still higher up and now we we move through the buffers well i mean you could make the argument that uh that means that there's a big incentive for the don to kill you because he now he doesn't even know you know because he he doesn't even have his lawyer there to 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 say okay he's not a rat so if he can't he doesn't know that you're not a rat he'll just kill you so how, well, is that, the, uh, how is that a good thing? Well, um, well, maybe you shouldn't be working for organized crime to begin with. This is actually one of the reasons we do have grand jury secrecy. And you see, we don't allow even the lawyer into that room, your lawyer. That's very interesting because ordinarily your lawyer you know, is allowed to accompany you in all, in all sorts of situations. In the Can police you, station, but, at a deposition, but not in the grand jury. So, I mean, could you then refuse to go be, on the grounds that that you'll be at risk? No, uh, they, that's when they offer you. They say, oh, no, you can't refuse. We've got this wonderful program. It's called Protective yeah, Custody. Mm. You're, you're, you know, we're going we're gonna to give you a new identity. We're going to give you plastic surgery, and you're going to, you know, live your life. In, well, no, I mean, this, so, is a, this is actually, I think it's an interesting issue because, first of all, witness protection is different from protective custody. Okay. And, and uh, you know, witness protection is for the rest of your life. Yes, and that is yes. typically paid by the Justice Department if they yeah. if they consider you, you know, a cooperating witness. But yes. um, 
So and you got to stay on their good side. So if, if they don't, if, okay, but if they don't offer you that, then you know, can you refuse yeah. on that basis? You're not. You're no. You 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 have to go. So then they have no incentive to offer it to you. Um, you and um, and okay, but um, suppose suppose you say you don't want to go. So you, know, you you go to a judge and you try to get an order. Now the judge is going to have a hearing. And the hearing might be in camera. And one part of that in camera hearing, in camera means chambers. You mm-hmm. see, chambers is used as distinct from court. Chambers from the French Chambre is a, is a room, but it's a closed room. That's why they talk about star chamber. You see, because star chamber was open to the public. But even in camera, that's a grand jury. It has the same secrecy. Any Any room in which there's a government official of some sort... And your lawyer is not allowed to be there with you to, to possibly report to the Don. That's the issue. And you're not allowed to say, I don't want to go to the grand jury and, and I won't tell the judge. Now the judge is actually talking to you. And what's to prevent the judge from asking you certain questions and you're saying my life is at risk or something. Okay. So I mean, now because, you've established, because the Don did it. So now you've established that there's, you know, some some depth of value to the secrecy. Okay. Well, now we know. Oh, hold that- on. And when, but here's what you're allowed to do. It's a crime for can be uh, for a grand juror to divulge certain things. We could make that okay, but not. I'm allowed to come out and say I said I didn't say nothing. Okay. Now we just don't know if that's true or not. But you're allowed to actually, I believe, make a claim about what you did and didn't say, you know, to the grand jury. I don't believe actually that's a crime. At the federal level, anyway, um, mm-hmm. this is what it says: under a plain r- reading of Rule Six E, yeah, witnesses, it is Six E. Yes, witnesses have an unfettered right to reveal the contents of their testimony. Yes, to any third party. Yes. Still, a section of the U.S. Attorney's Manual suggests a means of subjecting certain categories of witnesses to secrecy obligations. Mm. So, I mean, that, that's... Yes, uh, well, the, the, the 6E is the, the provision that I learned in law school. Okay, so very interesting. All right, now, this all is supposed to be related somehow to Donald Trump. Well, okay, so now we've got this secrecy. Okay, in, in the one degree of separation, his name is Roy Cohen, and if we're t- talking about the Godfather and fixers and consigliers. Okay. Yeah, well, we're also talking about the Don while yes. we're at it, so. <laughs> so. The Donald, okay. But at any rate, so now, all right, you've established that there's some importance to secrecy. Meanwhile, one of the things that's that happened over the last couple of weeks is the House of Representatives is now making noise about and has issued a subpoena, is my understanding, to the Manhattan DA, mm-hmm. Mr. Bragg. And so this certainly would seem to have some implications for impinging on the secrecy of, uh, of these proceedings. So again, without getting into right, right now, we're not, right now we're not talking about, okay, what's the prosecution he's bringing? Is it a good idea? What's the law? You know, again, part of this, we're not, we don't even know for, you know, for sure. But at any rate, we do know the subpoena has been issued and he has said he's going to defy it. So what I would ask you is, this is Congress acting within its powers? If so, what is the constitutional source of those powers? Um, and what are the implications 
for the secrecy that we were just talking about. And if this is, you know, somehow uh, there's some level of complexity here, do you have any theories that might help to address that and, and, and help with some of these problems? So the, um, why do we call it a grand jury? Because it's big. Um, and it's to be contradistinguished from what's actually called the petit or the petite jury. Um, traditionally, a petit jury, a petite jury, um, is um, 12 persons. This goes back to the Bible, because Jesus had 12 disciples. 12 is you know, seen as a very special number. And a grand jury typically is 23 persons, but a grand jury traditionally um, operates by majority rule. So, of course, a majority of 23 is 12, but a grand jury is bigger. Traditionally, trial juries, pettit juries, need to be unanimous to convict or acquit. That's actually unfortunate, in my view. I think we should have asymmetric rules, because... If the grand, if you me, if the trial jury in your first trial hangs eleven-one in your favor, that's not an acquittal. That's a mistrial, and you can be retried and then convicted twelve-zero. When we say, "Well, you were unanimously convicted," I say, "Yeah, only because we're not counting, you know, that first proceeding. It really isn't twelve-zero. It's really um, thirteen-eleven. Just so you see, it doesn't have to be that way." In an impeachment situation, it's unanimity isn't required, but anything um, less than two thirds is an acquittal. It's not a hung trial that you, you can be typically just tried again on the exact same thing. One third plus one typically counts as an acquittal. Okay. Now, why am I mentioning grand and pettit? Because you were asking me about congressional oversight. Here's why. Because on my, I do have a theory. My theory is Congress is the grandest of grand juries when it's doing its oversight function. It, in an impeachment situation, is the equivalent of a grand jury. It, it's the indicting body. We call that indictment an impeachment. No and, secrecy, though. Well, so we'll, you know, there's similarities and differences. So it, it, it could go into executive session if it wanted to. In an impeachment situation, it is very much like a grand jury, and the Senate is... In effect, the judge and jury that mixed the trying body where the trial takes place. But that's impeachment. Now, what about oversight? First of all, where does the Constitution say oversight? It doesn't. And this is how I begin chapter nine of America's unwritten Constitution. I'm saying, look, the Constitution is famous for a system of enumerated powers, but one of the biggest set of powers that Congress has isn't mentioned at all which is the oversight power, backed by contempt, and actually each House of Congress can act for certain purposes as judge, jury, prosecutor, jailer, all in one. Each House actually has a dungeon that it can actually throw you in, and Bragg needs to understand this. And, And if he doesn't believe me, ask Steve Bannon. Okay, I don't have I don't practice law, you know, but if I were giving the fellow legal advice, they say you need to take this seriously because you don't lightly get to defy a congressional, um, a House or Senate subpoena. Where does it say this in the Constitution? It doesn't clearly. It comes from parliamentary and state constitutional tradition and early earliest practices from the very, very beginning, from 1790, house, each House of Congress actually has engaged in investigation and oversight at, backed by contempt. And if you don't show up 
They will send the sergeant of arms as in arms, you know, out to, to, to grab you. And in Britain, they have these very interesting titles like the usher of the black rod and things like that. And, and I bet there is a black rod somewhere. And oh, I, there is. I, I, yes. And I don't, I don't think I'd like to be hit by that black rod. Okay. <laughs> so, um, sergeant at arms. Okay. And just sergeant. Okay. These are martial sounding words for, a, for a reason. So each house actually can grab you. And physically detain you. And if you don't, and if you continue to refuse to answer questions, you're in, they can judge you to be in contempt. They are the judge and the jury all in one. And to repeat, the jailer, and they actually have dungeons in these buildings, and you can be held as long as the body is in session. Now, in for the House, that means no more than two years. Oh, for the Senate, and I have some end notes about this. I say, this is a little trickier because in theory, the Senate is a continuing body. So how long? And then I say, by symmetry, they shouldn't be able to hold you longer than two years, just like the House. But I was frankly just, you could say just making stuff up or vamping. I would say I was doing structural constitutional interpolation here, answering some very nice and open-ended questions of our practice. But to repeat, from the very beginning, each house has actually had very broad investigation and oversight power. Here's one of the things that they did. Someone was accused early on of bribing a member of the house. They just grabbed, the, they sent the, the uh, surgeon at arms out. Um, he grabbed the guy. They brought him in. They had um, an adjudication and they sentenced him, I think, to several days in the dungeon for attempted bribery of a house member. Nowadays, Often they go through the courts with judicial process and all the rest. So Steve Bannon actually had a day in Article Three court, but actually they have preserved the right into the 21st century to do this without using ordinary courts. The OLC has affirmed that they have this power, the Office of Legal Counsel. The Warren Court has affirmed this. The Marshall Court, in a case called Anderson versus Dunn, I think it's something like um, D-U-N-N, 1827, unanimously affirmed this power. So just to repeat, um, James Madison vouched for it. He exercised it in the first House of Representatives. That case was about Robert Morris, the financier of the American Revolution. He was accused in the press of financial misconduct, and he insisted on a hearing to clear his name. Actually, and this was you know, allegations of what he had done under the Articles Confederation. And he's not a House member. I think he may have been a senator. I guess I can't even remember all the, the the details. But they held an oversight hearing. This goes back to the founding, and the Supreme Court unanimously affirmed it in a case called Andrew, um, under the Marshall Court, um, Anderson versus Dunn. The Supreme Court early in the 20th century in a case called McGrain versus Doherty, I think it was like 1917, um, upheld this. And in some landmark Warren Court opinions, one of them written by Earl Warren himself, um, upheld this. Now, what are the boundaries and what are the purposes of this? Here are the boundaries of it. The only punishment that can be imposed is detention. Fines, for example, are not permitted. And... You can't violate constitutional rights. So you can't go after someone just because they're a critic of the government or because they're Catholic. So the, the ordinary panoply of Bill of Rights protections does kind of operate. But in so, general, so if the DA could take the fifth. 
Yes. Um, but then he could be immunized. And once you're given immunity, you have to squawk. You have to talk. And if you don't, this is the Steve Bannon issue. You're going to the pokey. The issue for the courts, if someone were detained in the dungeon, anyone in any kind of captivity can seek to be released in a thing called habeas corpus. Um, and, um, and if you can't do it physically, someone else can do it on your behalf. And then the court actually issues a writ, a preliminary writ of habeas corpus to the person who's detaining you saying you must justify your detention of another human being. You must show that you have legal authority to do this. But here's the point. The legal authority in general is we're the Congress and, and we have this authority and a court wouldn't ordinarily second guess on the merits whether it thinks that if it were a member of Congress, it would do, it would um, order the detention. It just simply asks, did the Congress, uh, this uh, House of Congress, have jurisdiction? So here's what the jurisdiction, it does it have a legitimate public purpose. Okay, we'll need to talk a little bit more about that, as opposed to a private vendetta. And are they only adjudicating contempts against themselves because they're not permitted to punish you for all sorts of other things, but a contempt against itself during the pendency of this term. And again, term is a little trickier for the Senate and the House. Those tend to be the only things that courts get to look at in a writ of habeas corpus to ask the question, has the Congress acted outside of its jurisdiction. Now, connected to that, what's the purpose of all of this? And there are about three or four permissible purposes. One, so that Congress can actually learn what's going on, so it can decide whether it needs a new law or even a new constitutional amendment, because maybe actually they don't have the power to regulate a certain thing today, but they're allowed to actually initiate a constitutional amendment, two-thirds of the House, two-thirds of the Senate. So that's very, like anything that's of legitimate public concern, oh, they get to inform themselves about. And part of what they're allowed to do is publicize misconduct simply because they think it's misconduct. And grand juries in the states are allowed to do that as well. They're not just about criminal prosecution. They're about exposing wrongdoing to public disapprobation, a public opprobrium. What they're not permitted to do is pursue, and what's, you know, it's a nice line, some private vendetta just to expose someone who happens to be, for example, you know, personally an enemy of the chair of the committee or something that that could get you into trouble. Like a bill of attainder. It looks a little like that, but they can single me out and they can single me out because they think I've done something wrong. It just Mm -hmm. can't be personal. You know, you know, now we're back to, to one. It says, you've taken this very personal, Mikey. Yes. No, it has to be about business. It can't be personal. I, I'm just telling you what the, the, the law of this is. And, and I know some of those are, oh, those are nice questions and distinctions. What's business? What's personal? But I just told you the, the basic ground rules of this completely unwritten set of powers, the power of congressional oversight, which to repeat are discussed in the, and, and we should, we can post this on um, the, the website, Andy, the first eight or so pages of chapter nine of America's unwritten constitution. Okay, well, taking it to this specific case, then, um, they're 
they're purporting to look to see whether there's something, I suppose, unreasonable or Bishy, personal political, or who yeah. knows, you know, I'm, they're, and they're allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. And I'm a nationalist. And I think this is why, I'm, this is why I went all back to the grand distance. They are the grand, they uh, are allowed, you know, in this proper supremacy clause system, you know, the national grand jury, the grand inquest of the people, which is the house of representatives is allowed to overcome or displace some grand jury in this city or town somewhere. That's federalism. That's preemption. That's the supremacy clause. Yes. They are the big grand, the bigger grand jury is supreme over the littler grand jury. It does seem a little, uh, shall we say ironic for what appears to be a political investigation to be, uh, conducted to see whether the DA is conducting a political investigation. It is, and that's why it was really important for us Democrats to have won the House, held the House, and we didn't do it. So national elections have consequences. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, this does have implications, though, for the if it goes on in the middle of of this grand jury investigation and you have all this secrecy, and now suddenly this stuff is aired, you know, can... Can the DA uh, refuse to answer on the grounds that uh, it's violating that secrecy? Is that, you know, come back and ask me later, you know, or something like that? Well, there's some set of privileges about what was said in a grand jury room. And that's a nice question about whether that privilege is going to be respected by the House of Representatives. But we this is similar, Andy, to what we talked about before with Mike Pence. You know, I'm not sure that he has just a right to refuse to show up, Attorney Bragg, any more than former Vice President Pence has a general right to refuse to show up. Oh, and now our audience is hearing Akil tries to have the same rules for Democrats and Republicans. You see, I said, you know, Pence might have legitimate objections to specific questions, but he can't just refuse to show up. And that's my general sense about Bragg as well. And now suppose the Congress says, okay, we heard what you had to say, and we still, you know, want to get some more information. So give us your witness list, and mm-hmm. we're going to talk to these witnesses. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, maybe some of them may have to testify in court later or something like that. And, um, you know, and they, they say, well, you know, I don't want to. And so then, then they get immunized. And what does this do to you know, to, to possible prosecution? Or what if they want to talk to Michael Cohen? Or if they want to talk to Stormy Daniels? They want to talk to President Trump or something like that. So it, it seems like they could re- that this congressional investigation could really screw up not just the investigation, but an actual trial because of some of these Fifth Amendment privileges. You're absolutely right. And so I'm so glad you mentioned all that. And I got two words for you, Oliver North. And I I'm wrote glad those about- are the two words. I wrote about Oliver North way back when I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times about just this. So let me connect it, Andy, for the groupies out there who have actually listened to all of our episodes to what we talked about way back when, when we had a couple of episodes on Fifth Amendment self-incrimination. So the case that we talked about to begin with was, I think it's 1827 case called People versus Kelly in which someone, and this, is a, this was a New York grand jury, was summoned by a New York grand jury 
and he was asked, were you at the gambling table? Gambling is illegal. He says, I don't want to tell you. They said, okay, you're hereby immunized. And the narrow immunity is the words you use can't be introduced in a criminal prosecution, but the fruits can be. So you're immunized. So were you at the gambling table? Yes. But they can't introduce that yes in your criminal case for reasons that we discussed um, in this early episode. Fine, but now you're in the grand you're you're the grand jury inquisitor, you're you know, Jack McCoy or whatever. Which the next question you're gonna ask is an obvious one. Who else was at the gambling table with you? And if you have to answer truthfully and you do, well now I can they can go to that other person, they can testify against you, and now we got you. Okay. That's people versus Kelly. Okay. Now in a Mars world, this grand jury proceeding is never hurting a prosecution. They didn't have your words to begin with. And if the words are excluded, fine, they're not made worse off. And, and if it can generate all sorts of leads and fruits, okay, then prosecutors might be better off. Now flash forward. That was People versus Kelly, I think it's 1827 to, and again, we talked, had an earlier episode on this during President Lincoln's presidency, a whole bunch of money is missing. I think it's the equivalent today of several million dollars from a federal office. They, I think there were two clerks in the office. They're summoned before a congressional oversight hearing. You know, they want to know, they say, what happened to the money? They say, we take the fifth. We don't want to tell you. And they say, we immunize you. They say, oh, we embezzled it. <laughs> okay. And this angers, but at the time, you couldn't use that testimony, fine, but you also couldn't use any fruits. So Congress introduces a bill. And the bill is, from now on, when you come before Congress and we force you to talk, the words are going to be excluded, but any fruit is fair game. And Amar thinks that's perfectly fine. And this ensures that any congressional oversight isn't going to mess up a prosecution. The idea being that if if they find something... Uh, at the state level um, that they that they want to try you for, they still could do it, even though you were immunized. Or even the federal level, because anything is fair game in a, in, a, in a prosecution, except the words you were obliged to utter. That's the only thing that's excluded. But in a case called Councilman versus Hitchcock, I think it's like 1897 or so, you could look it up. The Supreme Court said, oh, no, that's not good enough. The immunity that you get when you're forced to testify, it's not just that your words are excluded, but any leads, any fruit that derives from Because I got a congressman saying, here's what's going to happen. Under this law, he says, I'm introducing a law, and, and here's what people object to. They say, well, you could force someone to talk, and then you could use those words to generate other leads. And then he says, well, sir, I hope it will be so. He says, that's all a rascal deserves, okay? And I think this might have even been Lyman Trumbull who said this, but but Abraham Lincoln signs his name to that law. So I got Abraham Lincoln on my side, okay? But the Supreme Court in the age of Plessy versus Ferguson and Lochner and all the rest said, oh, that's not enough. Um, if you're forced to talk in an ordinary grand jury or in a congressional committee, uh, congressional um, oversight situation, if you're forced to talk after taking the fifth, the words have to be suppressed, but also any leads, any fruits that might come from the words. Now, Oliver North. Oliver North is forced to testify before, I can't remember which House of Congress, or maybe it was a joint session. 
He took the fifth. He was given immunity. He talked. Um, later, he was prosecuted and the D.C. Circuit and convicted of a felony. The D.C. Circuit tossed out the conviction on this Fifth Amendment ground. And here's what they said. They said, Some of the stuff in the prosecution was, in effect, fruity. It was a consequence of the compelled congressional testimony. And the government says, the Justice Department, wait a minute. We actually created a separate prosecution team. The min- We asked Congress not to hold the oversight hearing, but they said, Screw you. We want FaceTime. We, we, you know, part of what's going on, you know, because the, the, it's going to be dramatic and, and everyone's going to watch and they're on TV and all the rest. So they said the Justice Department actually said to Congress, please don't do this. You could mess up our prosecution. Congress said, thanks for your, th- your, your, your thoughts. We're going to do it anyway. So the Justice Department created a separate team of prosecutors. They created what was called a Chinese, it still is called in the business, in the, a Chinese wall. There were a certain set of folks that were told they can't watch because this was just nationally televised. They can't watch it. They're supposed to just put themselves in a cone of silence so that when there is a prosecution. Oh, and before the North hearing, they tried to put in the vault all sorts of information that they already had that they could show to a court, like notarize it. We had this. We had that before North opened his mouth. Here's all the stuff that we had. Here's all our evidence stamped and, and, and notarized. Put it in a vault. Okay, and we have our prosecution team and they're behind the Chinese wall. So they're not getting any information, uh, any fruit from. But the problem was some of the witnesses put on by the government in its case in chief against Oliver North watched the televised hearings. You know, wouldn't you? They're interested in it there. They want to know if their name is being mentioned. Okay. And even though maybe several of them were deposed earlier and the government had actually put in the vault their answers to all sorts of questions, their actual testimony at trial had been, the D.C. Circuit decided, influenced by, affected by, in a causal way, the Oliver North testimony. So it was fruit. The testimony actually had refreshed the recollection of certain witnesses about underlying events years before. And because of that, because there was a congressional oversight, that conviction was tossed out on appeal because the D.C. Circuit said that this prosecution was the fruit, to some extent, of the compelled testimony in an oversight process. That's just what might happen, except that was separation of powers, Congress screwing up a federal Justice Department prosecution. Here, the congressional oversight might be screwing up possibly a state prosecution, whether we're talking about Bragg in New York or, frankly, the Georgia investigation, Raffsenberger and all the rest down in Georgia. Now, there's a third one that you, we haven't talked about at all yet, Mar-a-Lago, and that would be you know, the Justice Department. That would be very, very similar to the Oliver North situation. And I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times about all this, because as you know, I'm really into um, Fifth Amendment self-incrimination. Two people on my side on this, two eminent scholars, one, my friend, 
Ron Wright, I believe he kind of said, gee, maybe we should just have narrower rules of Fifth Amendment immunity in congressional investigations. Another person who I think a scholar agreed with my position, current dean of Georgetown Law Center, my dear friend. Ron was my one of my closest friends in Yale Law School. And Bill Trainer, the current dean of the Georgetown Law Center, one of my closest friends in Yale College and in Yale Law School. I actually edited his student note. He worked for Judge Walsh, who was, I believe, the prosecutor of Oliver North and had this victory taken, you know, out of the win column by the umpires after, you know, by the league, as it were, you know, after it already, you know, went into the win column or something. And I believe like both Bill Trainer. Oh, yes. The George Brett. Yes. So, so I believe this is just my memory that both Ron Wright and Bill Trainer said, even if Amar's Fifth Amendment immunities idea go too far in general, we should have a special narrower immunity when it comes to congressional oversight. Because remember, just from a technical point of view, the Fifth Amendment says no one shall be compelled to be a witness against himself in a criminal case. And you're only being compelled to be a witness in a congressional oversight proceeding. That's really not a criminal case from just in an ordinary language sense. In any sense. I mean, you know, I think that uh, I don't think anybody thinks that the House is interested in anything other than, you know, scoring political points here. There's nothing to do with uh well, you could imagine when they're working in cahoots with, you know, a prosecutor, state, or especially the Justice Department. So, so it's it's not unimaginable. Right. But, but Andy, let's put, let's put on the website the New York Times op-ed I wrote about all this and the Oliver North situation. Okay. All right. So, um, getting back now to the prosecution in general. Um, so again, there's these three different investigations yes new york just, georgia new york, and georgia and, and the federal investigation of what's the, go, of what happened in florida the, the, the top secret documents allegedly that you know were found in mar-a-lago correct um and not just classified but like high levels of classification very very top secret so i mean as a layman you know listening to this um this the idea that president might have interfered with the election uh, you know, the uh, proper procedures in Georgia, that sounds like a pretty serious accusation. It does. Um, the idea that he uh, may have you know, deliberately even possibly kept, you know, documents of high national security level under questionable uh, security, you know, when he, number one, he, he didn't have possibly the right to, to have them. We may not have secured them properly where he may have lied about whether or not he returned all the documents, you know, all these ac possible accusations, that sounds pretty serious. It does. They do. And look, I think we, we all might have pause about the idea of one administration investigating the president from a previous administration. Yes. But, but on the other hand, I think, and not just a previous administration, but as you mentioned before, someone who might, might be, be running candidate. against the current administration. And of the three, I, you know, I haven't followed any of them in intricate detail, and, and I don't have all the information. The Bragg one, I have many, many, many more questions about than the other two, the Georgia and the Mar-a-Lago. Right. So I think from a you know political point of view, um, 
or from the point of view of if you you know if you're going to do this if you're going to go after um you know an ex-president or a possible candidate for president declared candidate then you'd like to see it be the most serious charges uh yes that that uh, be the ones that, and then if you yeah, have not, to, and not just on the law, the seriousness of the charge, but you know, a very strong case on the facts. Right. So we don't know again because of secrecy and the fact that they just haven't come out with it yet. We don't know exactly what they're what they're going to say, if anything. Mm-hmm. But it does seem to center around questions of uh, hush money paid to. Stormy Daniels um, to not talk about her sexual affair with Donald Trump, which he denies. He denies it took place. He denies that there was hush money paid, etc. Now, you know, one reason that we think that this might might be what it's about is that Michael Cohen has already pled guilty to you know to things that were that had to do with this this affair. So. Um, it seems like the accusations include the notion that uh, Cohen made a payment, but it wasn't really him that was paying it, that he was given money, uh, which he then relayed, you know, kind of passed on to her, and that that wasn't recorded accurately. This is the allegation, it seems like, in the records of the Trump campaign. So that, there might be some crime associated with that, with that falsification of, the, of those records. Part of the evidence that, that we've read in the paper might be used are things, for example, the fact that Cohen received himself more money than the actual payment to, so that he wouldn't so to cover his taxes uh, on that money. So that's one thing. And then that in and of itself apparently would not be uh, a felony unless it were unless there were a second crime. And then the second crime, some people think, might have to do with the actual payment itself. Some kind of, you know, that the notion of paying hush money is somehow a, a campaign finance violation. So, do you have any thoughts about the law as it stands regarding the payment of money to people to not say things in campaigns? Yeah, so look, I'm not an expert on this, but alarm bells go off in my head when I, I hear all this. Let's just put aside even statute of limitations issues, which might be very real. Okay, so one thing is law can be really technical, and what might be a crime in under one situation uh, characterization is just a brilliant legal, legally permissible thing. And if you're a layperson, you might not know the difference. So I think I told this story before to the podcast audience. My wife is brilliant. And we once went to a candy store to get some jelly beans for the kids. And she asked the clerk, how much are the jelly beans? And he says, $1.99 a pound, 99 cents a half pound. She says, without like a second, she says, we'll take two half pounds, please. Which is $1.98, you see. And I say, Vanitha, you know, you're an amazing physician, but if you'd gone into law, you would have either made a gazillion dollars we would have ended up in prison. And and it's not clear which, you see, because what a brilliant tax shelter that's tax avoidance, which is lawful, and what's actually tax evasion that gets you, you know, a, you know, uh, that's a felony. Oh, sometimes it's a very, very fine line. So the law, for example, says you have to report cash deposit of more than $10,000 $10, or more. 
Um, this is to prevent money laundering and things like that. So instead, you deposit money in $9,995 uh, parcels in 10 different banks. I, I would have thought that's just complying with the law. The law is 10,000. You're, you're short of, no, it's called stacking, uh, structuring, excuse me. That's the crime. This is like, you know, two half pounds. So like, so one thing, Michael Cohn is doing this and he's your lawyer. And, you know, I think, well, you're allowed to, this is just cl a clever way of, of structuring the thing. I promise you some things are legal with, you know, five different shell corporations, you know, um, each one wholly owned subsidiary, the other, sometimes that's permissible. And sometimes that's like an Enron kind of Ponzi system scam with the Raptors. Okay. So, but you, you're not a lawyer. And if your lawyer has set this up a certain way, you know, so that's one thing that I do worry about in terms of just prosecuting people when they're actually using. And now, Michael Cohn shouldn't be a lawyer. And he is the part. This is this is a problem when actually people who aren't ethical are given licenses to practice law because lawyers have all sorts of special powers in the system. Lawyers can subpoena people that other private individuals can't. They're, they're officers of the court. They're given certain quasi-governmental powers. So one thing, honestly, that worries me a little bit is, you know, this was done with a lawyer. So that's, you know, because part of what you get from a lawyer is a certain, you know, plausible deniability claim. Like, I don't know how all this works. I'm, I'm not a legal expert. That's what I hired my lawyer. That's what I hired the accountant to do. So that's, that's one set of issues. Listen, when your lawyer is Roy Cohen, who was, you know, a mob lawyer, he was now, and I can say that legally now because you technically can't libel the dead. The guy was, you know, a mob lawyer and, and Donald Trump picked him. So it is a problem when you have lawyers of low repute, but they're, but legally prosecuting clients for doing things that their lawyers sign off on makes me truthfully a little nervous and nervous. And our audience knows I'm not. I'm as fiercely opposed to Trump as, you know, it's possible to be. And and we should maybe just put up again what I wrote about the threat to the republic on Halloween 2016, you know, because I was taking it seriously before he was elected and other people weren't. Now, here's a second thing that worries me, which is what just happened in India, the world's largest democracy. We're kind of the world's oldest in a way. You could talk about Switzerland and Britain, but we're surely one of the the, the oldest, and I would have thought until, you know, recent years, you know, most solid and secure. It is the largest. It made great strides. But since our last episode, Andy, here are two related things that happened. Judges who, in my view, are not our own Barack, who aren't that independent, maybe who are hacks, um, sentenced an opposition leader, Rahul Gandhi, who's grandmother was Indira Gandhi and whose father was prime minister and whose father was Rajiv Gandhi, who was a prime minister and whose great grandfather was uh, Jawaharlal Nehru, who was the founding prime minister. This is an amazing political family in India. I'm, I've actually been critical of the Nehru dynasty and I don't love dynasty, but he's an opposition leader and he was sentenced by judges, lower court judges, it's on appeal, but to two years in prison for basically saying something kind of snide and nasty about the prime minister, saying that he has the same last name as um, some certain thieves that were convicted, Modi. Okay, that's two years? This this seems to me like the Sedition Act, you know, of 79. You, you, you criticize the sitting head of state and you get two years of prison? Okay, 
That was the first shoe to drop. Then the second shoe is Parliament said, oh, well, now, since you're a criminal, you actually are being expelled from the legislature, even though people voted for you. That just happened. And it makes me, you know, cringe because Rahul Gandhi was a possible challenger, you know, down the line to Modi, who's the, an authoritarian prime minister. And I, I can say that because I'm not an Indian citizen and, and I'm not going to India, you know, anytime soon and he can't get me, you know. Um, no, I have friends who are in India who are very worried. Here's a great Indian who's standing up to the administration. I hold him in the highest regard. His name is Ram Guha. Ramachandran Guha, he wrote an amazing book called India After Gandhi, the best book of modern Indian history. He wrote another book called Gandhi Before India. He's a very great man and very brave because he's standing up against the administration. I think there are a couple of other scholars who are, I think maybe Prithab Mehta is another one. I'm not being very brave because I'm not an Indian citizen in India at risk. This guy is an authoritarian thug, I think. And what has just happened in the last week is a leading opposition candidate has been sentenced to two years in prison for basically a campaign misconduct of a certain sort, the judges said, and now being thrown out of the legislature, even though people voted for him. I'm worried because the Bragg investigation is connected to campaign finance irregularities of a certain sort. And I think some of the campaign finance laws are actually very dubious and troubling. In another episode, Andy, I'm going to tell our audience, just I need to be you know fair with them. Uh, I think Citizens United was rightly decided that campaign finance law was a crappy law, a McCain-Feingold campaign finance law. And some of what I... I don't really understand the Bragg prosecution intuitively yet, um, but some of it makes me a little nervous, and here's why. It's connected to Hashmani and all the rest. You, you're running for office. You want to be elected. You want people to vote for you, and you want people to help you get elected, and none of that is corrupt. And so you have friends in some newspaper, and you say, please endorse me, and please use money to help me by publishing newspapers, by trying to encourage people to get out the vote, by giving me, by paying reporters who make me look good and write nice stories about me. I want you, my friends in Fox News or whatever on the one side or the New York Times on the other. Yes, I want you to spend your money to try to make me look good. And I say it that way, you say, ooh, that sounds corrupt. No, it's not. That's actually permissible. Okay, now what about, okay, so that's paying people money to, to, to help me get elected. Now, what about paying people money to not say certain things that are unflattering? I think actually that's permissible too. I can, I can encourage people to pay, you know, to, to write good stories about me. And to not write bastards. Here's what I think is corrupt. Cause I do think I have a line for corruption. It's a different line. It's if I'm getting money for a can, uh, it's supposed to be for my campaign, a campaign contribution. If I'm using the money to help me get elected, that's actually what people gave me the money for. So hiring staff, hiring pollsters, hiring people to get out the vote. 
paying money to reporters to write some nice little story up about me, paying people not to write nasty stories about me. That seems all, yes, people are giving you money so you, you can win the election. What they, you shouldn't be using the money for. What would be corrupt, in my view, is taking campaign money and using it for personal purposes. That seems to me problematic and corrupt. They're giving you money for the campaign and you're diverting that for your own, to your own personal account. But what seems weird, and maybe it's just because I don't understand the stuff. That's quite possible. I haven't followed the brag thing closely. I admit that. But what seems weird is they're claiming that what makes all this criminal is actually it was to help Trump get elected. I'm thinking, yeah, that, but that's rather than to, you know, to, to, for personal purposes so that Melania wouldn't be upset with him. I'm thinking if it were for personal purposes and you're using campaign money, that seems corrupt to me. But if you're using campaign money to help you get elected, duh, that's what you're supposed to use the money for. And it's possible I misunderstand all of this. Well, it's funny because uh, David French had a column in the New York Times where he goes over this and he says, well, um, you know, they have to show a second crime. It's complicated. And I think we'll have to really wait for the indictment to come out to, to really look 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 if it happens but what he's saying is well to show this second crime they would have to the first crime would be that the business records were falsified okay and then the second crime would be that okay but and it was actually used for an illicit campaign purpose it was a violation of a campaign finance law that would be the second crime and david french is saying well he's just going to say that we used it for a private purpose to keep, you know, right. but what you're saying is that that's actually, that actually would be the crime. Right. So. I think that's, I actually think it's backwards. So let's, let's talk about AOC. She wears a designer dress, haute couture, that says tax the rich or something like that. Now, if she was just doing that to be a billboard, because she actually believes we should tax the rich, this seems to me permissible. She's a politician trying to make a political statement. Now, if instead, oh, it's this very nice, fancy dress and she's using it kind of, you know, for personal purposes, you know, and then, then that's, that's a sort of a different sort of thing. If she's using campaign money for the, 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 the rental dress or something like that. Now, you see how some of these are complicated because actually if she's using the money to get a nice haircut to help her get elected, is, is that a personal thing or is that to help her get elected? And you, you actually pay consultants to make you look good and give you the right answer politically to this question or that one. So these things can be, you know, actually quite complex. What's personal? What's campaign related? As I said, yes, my intuition is if you're using campaign money to help you win the campaign. Now, there's a further wrinkle. This is hush money. Yes, because it's embarrassing stuff. You don't, the whole point of, so, so, um, what did Bill Clinton say? I mentioned marijuana use earlier. Bill Clinton said, Oh, I smoked pot in England when I was on my roads, but I didn't inhale. Okay. And people thought like, that's, you know, that's weird. So Barack Obama says, yes, you know, I use pot. I inhaled. He says, that was the point. And I thought that's, that, that guy was actually sort of honest. Okay. Okay. And I'm saying like, okay, the point is to get elected. Bottom line is it's, 
it's convoluted. It's not it something that uh, is readily understandable to the public. It, it's is it even a crime? I mean, it it's sorted to be sure. Yeah, yeah. It, but I, I really, but it's so easy in Georgia. You lost an election, and now you're actually putting pressure on officials to falsify an election. Oh, I get that. Oh my gosh. You know, you have top secret documents and you're throwing them around, uh, you know, very casually and maybe showing them, you know, uh, showing off, showing them off to to make you feel good. And you you lie about all of this. I understand those things. Mm -hmm. You know, I honestly can't quite wrap my mind around all the complexities. It was Michael Cohen and Stormy Daniels and this campaign finance law and that one. It just seems really weird and convoluted to me, truth be told. Like, why can't we get the guy just on ordinary garden variety tax evasion? I could understand that, you know, um, Al Capone style. Well, you know, the bottom line is, I mean, we've been talking now for you know, way longer than our podcast has existed, you know, 2016 and before about how this guy is the gravest danger to the Republic. And the best that you come up with and to prove that is this stuff, you know, so, Mm -hmm. so I, I really think that, uh, um, I'm concerned, but let's see, let's see what happens. Yes, of course. We don't know the facts and and we're honest with, but I hope Andy, even though we don't know all the facts, I hope in this episode, which I know is drawing to a close, we have given our audience once again, you know, some some smart ways of thinking about all sorts of things like congressional oversight, grand jury secrecy, you know, the fundamental problems with of, of, of immunity and the differences between these three different episodes, because they do seem to me quite different. Uh, the, the New York, the Georgia, and the Justice Department. Right. And if the Georgia and the Justice Department want uh, investigations, uh, you know, bear fruit, I suppose, is one way of looking at it, um, we'll certainly be there to cover that. Okay. Well, that's great. So we'll see what, we'll see what happens maybe this week. And uh, if not, there's plenty more to talk about next week. Thank and you. when's your tooth? No, I don't want to talk about that one. See, I had, you know... <laughs> So Take we, the fifth. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye.